we wanted to really go, here's a lighthearted way to understand why you line up to get the next iPhone. Here's why you probably don't even realize why iPhone has iPhone 12 and then 12S, right? iPhone 10 and 10S and what that really does to your psychology. We wanted to really go, you probably care less about your iPhone as soon as a new one comes out. And you're probably more likely to be okay with it breaking because there's a subconscious justification of it. And it's all many times a design piece. Not always, but many times it's designed that way. Welcome to Uncooked, a podcast serving up raw insights for marketers as we hear the unfiltered truth from industry experts, brands, and the target audiences we serve in their own words. I'm your host, Jacqueline Lieberman, and today on Uncooked, I'm speaking with Prince Gooman. He is an author, professor, and a neuromarketer. Prince and his co-founder, Matt Johnson, started the company called Pop Neuro, and they're co-authors of the book called Blindsight, The Mostly Hidden Ways Marketing Reshapes Our Brains. In my quest to better understand why we're attracted to the brands we love, my conversation with Prince attempts to uncover that hidden relationship between brand and brain. Basically, it's the science behind why we stand in line outside in the rain for hours for the next iPhone. Like the book Blindside, I hope this episode will change the way you view not just branding, but maybe yourself and your own behaviors. So let's dig in. I know I'm so excited because I'm such a strategy nerd, so I couldn't wait to have you. I want to start with, because I know that you're part of a duo. So of that duo, you are deemed the neuromarketer and Matt Johnson, PhD, co-founder, author, is a neuroscientist. Is that right? That is correct. I'll give you our background because that'll help contextualize this peanut butter and jelly partnership that we've built over the years. So I've spent roughly 15 years as a marketer and early on to really stand out and become a quality marketer. My strategy was to read a ton of neuroscience and psychology research and apply it to marketing. And for the first half of my career, I worked in startups. So luckily enough, getting a leadership role in startups meant I had a lot more control and a lot less red tape to jump through before I could A-B test my neuroscience and psych research into practice. So I did that for over a decade. So, you know, more of a applied neuroscience background, applied directly to marketing. And this sort of business school in San Francisco heard about this way of marketing and they reached out to me to teach one marketing class. And a month or so later, they ended up giving me a full-time job offer. So at the time, I was a CMO for a public traded company, and I slept on it for a week and said, okay, let's do it. Life's too short to have one career, and I pivoted over to being a professor. In the process of being a professor, I got to collect all of the neuromarketing shenanigans I've been doing for over a decade and met Matt, who is the other side of the coin, who is a neuroscience PhD from Princeton, and he had been researched for over a decade. And he kind of had this itch that was, we have all this brilliant research sitting inside journals and there's no real way to apply it. Mm-hmm. And there aren't that many people applying it. I was on the other side where the research is great. I want to understand it quickly and test it even quicker to understand what works, what doesn't work. So we synced up. We taught a class on neuromarketing. It blew up. We taught it at the master's level. We ended up doing lots of speaking and workshops for corporations. And ultimately we said, there's a book here right? Initially, we thought it should be a textbook, but then 
that wasn't as fun for us to be honest with you right. like no let's write a book that's for everyone not just marketers let's write a book that is targeted towards consumers towards anyone who's interested in how your brain interacts with marketing Why don't you just give us the backstory as to what Pop Neuro is and how you ended up starting that with Matt and how long ago? Pop Neuro started in 2018. And the idea behind Pop Neuro is to scale education around neuromarketing to practitioners. And neuromarketing can be fit into two branches. There's neuromarketing principles and there's neuromarketing research which is where you really use the neuroscience tools and you apply them to marketing. So we're looking at fMRI and EEG and other imaging tools that you can use to unearth a lot of insights. The issue is those tools are expensive. And you go back to what's always been the case, the 90th percentile of brands have access to these tools or professionals who can address them. And yet the principles are still rather unknown. So we do both of those things. We help company use neuroimaging at scale to unearth insights. And we help companies who perhaps don't want to or have a research culture that supports that, but rather would just understand the neuroscientific underpinnings for marketing and apply it to web copy, to brand strategy, all the way down to the email subject line or Google AdWords or display ads. Because at the end of the day, as marketers, we are supposed to be students of human behavior. We just so apply it to a very specific field. And it's shocking how that foundational knowledge of neuroscience that immediately helps with marketing is just rarely connected together. So that's the company's mission, either using imaging or principles to make marketers have a foundational understanding on neuroscience. I think that's really important. And I'm wondering about like that conversation to the marketing director at a big CPG and when they're in the mode of focus groups and MRI data and, you know, doing segmentation and then somebody, a brand manager is like, Hey, I want to do this neural marketing testing. And how does that get received? I wonder. The analogy I like to draw here is user experience, except for 20 years ago, right? Imagine trying to sell someone on user experience-based product differentiator in the 90s, yeah. right? In the 80s, it was really hard. But now that is commonplace. Every marketing team or product team has a user experience person who understands cognitive neuroscience and uses it for interaction design. And neuromarketing is at that precipice, especially the principles piece. You know, we have intuited how to grab attention. We'll look at, let's look at the ad industry, for instance, right? There are brilliant creatives everywhere who have intuited over the years and decades of creating attention-grabbing ads without actually understanding the neuroscience of attention. So when I've been fortunate enough to speak to some of these creative directors and leaders in the field who, when I ask them about neuromarketing, they go, you mean Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Because we tried to check at least two of those pillars, which is actually great, right? Like at least there's some form of that right. there. Right. But when I asked them, how deep did you understand the neuroscience of attention so that way you can recreate and use that to inform better creatives? Blank stares. Right. So that's one example of many is how can we reverse engineer the neuroscience of attention 
to create better attention grabbing ads or however you want to use attention. If you're in a saturated field like energy drinks or bottled water, grabbing attention is paramount, right? Especially when we think about spirits. Spirits have skyrocketed over the 10 years, not just during the pandemic. And there's a glut of brands selling essentially indistinguishable products. So attention is huge when you look at the shelf. That's one example. So we teach the principle, the neuroscience of attention, and then we show you a playbook that says, now that you know the science, here's the playbook. And once you see the playbook, we do activities to help bring that to life. And then you can take it home and apply it. And that's just one example, right? And that right there is a two-hour workshop. And then we grab another behavior piece, for instance, memory. And here's how memory encoding works. Here's how memory retrieval works. And then again, here's a playbook of how to optimize certain marketing branches for memory, retail design, web design, experiences. And there you go, put it into exercise and do that over and over and over. And that's the principal piece. Mm. You're still using neuroscientific principles to guide marketing. And really the neuromarketing principles piece is the new operating system for marketing. It is the next operating system for marketing. It is, like I said earlier, analogous to what UX was 20, 30 years ago. Right. It's just not commonplace. So the big question here is, how can we reverse engineer the neuroscience of attention to create better attention-grabbing ads? I mean, as marketers, we've been trying to understand this question since the beginning of time. But what I love about this point is to ask ourselves, how different would our creative ideas be if we understood how to fire off different synapses in our brains? Or if we really truly understood how memory works, could we then create better brand recall through our marketing efforts? Prince's company called Pop Neuro offers workshops for marketers who want to sharpen their understanding of human behavior and then apply it to their own work. So obviously I'm going to check it out myself. So what are some of the titles of the people who would be in a workshop like this to understand what these principles are and apply to their real jobs? Marketing directors, CMOs are the top, but we also get a ton of directors of strategy at creative agencies and we get a ton of creative directors. Mm -hmm. So those four make up, I would say, 80% of the attendees when we teach these neuromarketing principle boot camps. And the other 20% are kind of all over the place. You've got content managers and digital marketing managers, and believe it or not, other professors who are leveling up their knowledge of neuroscience. We love teaching this group because as much as we know our lane, we know neuromarketing principles. It's just fascinating to talk to someone who has 25 years in marketing CPG products that are geared towards kids and see their lights go on and then apply the stuff we're doing and exercises in ways that's just fascinating. Each boot camp is just an experience for us as well as the teachers, as the coaches, as much as the students. And to go back to your original question, Jacqueline, is this a hard sell? I think people who believe in science-based marketing, it's not a hard sell. Mm -hmm. But for better or worse, those people are akin to unicorns at the moment. And that's fine because for those unicorns, they're going to have a massive advantage when they create a retail experience for a Staples or a Lululemon, right? And they are able to get ahead in the ways that the early adopters for UX got ahead. I mean, 
way before Apple launched the iPhone, there was the real cult of Apple, which was the Macintosh and the user experience. And we all know that case study. And sure, driven by Zen philosophy, if you believe the popular narrative of Steve Jobs, but ultimately they committed deeply to industrial design and user experience. And that ended up being a massive differentiator. And they didn't stop at just the products. I mean, their retail experience, now everyone's mimicking that, right? And you can see it in Tesla. You can see when you sit inside a Tesla and how the UX and the interaction of Tesla. And one of the things that, again, we can nerd out some more on this is, is sound branding. It's, it's shocking to me that sound branding as a differentiator and as an experience multiplier isn't researched as well. You sit inside of a Toyota and it tells you to put your seatbelt on in an annoying tone. We sit inside a Tesla, it is a pleasant tone because whether we are conscious of it or not, that seatbelt tone is associated with said product <laughs> and brand, right? So 100%. That thing bling at you for, and you're like, all right, all right. You just want to be like, you know, let's ease into the driving experience, you know? Exactly. You know, like if you take the uh, how to grab attention, and if you actually work through the imaging piece, you're able to see just how much attention it's grabbing and you're able to test different tones to see if they perhaps grab too much attention, right? Yeah. And with the imaging piece that we're working on, you can actually test for attraction. Am I drawn to this as a first experience? You can actually test preference or likability, which is, am I drawn to do this repeatedly? And you're able to get those insights that you simply cannot get from surveys and focus groups, right? The implicit bias is there, although surveys scale really well and focus groups scale a little less, but nonetheless, it's more mm -hmm. qualitative. But using neuroimaging, you really cut out the middle man and middle woman and look at the level of the brain, despite what is self-reported, and able to pull out everything from sound branding. Can you imagine a world where data collection comes from neuroimaging rather than surveys or focus groups? So cool. I mean, granted, surveys and focus groups rely on a baseline of these implicit trusts between, you know, the person asking the questions and then the people giving the answers, and especially in a group setting. But with neuroimaging, are we skipping that relationship in favor of a deeper truth? I mean, maybe. Thinking about using neuroimaging for my next client research opportunity, it is appealing to me because we do tend to rely on focus groups a lot. And we all know that there's this group bias that inevitably happens no matter how good the moderator is. It seems more valuable maybe to have neuroimaging findings from six individuals versus the same six people sitting around a table in a group setting. It seems like you can get more value with the same amount of people. Just a thought. So when you're doing the neuroimaging in terms of testing, this is what I'm picturing. I'm picturing somebody in front of a laptop with nodes on their brain connected to a machine. And I'm sure that yep. that's not the case. <laughs> that is actually the case. It imagine, is? Imagine if you're scuba diving and an octopus has a hold on your head. Yeah. You know, to be able to turn brain data, to cut out the noise, to be able yeah. to do the experiment cleanly, to come up with clean data, cut the noise, and then 
look for markers for all these things I've outlined, attraction, oh likability. So how many people how many people do you get to agree to do that, to put these things on their heads and surf and give you feedback? Let's say we speak to a hundred people, right? We will get 80 of them super excited about the imaging piece. But it is cost prohibitive. There's a lot of labor that goes into it. So out of those 100, we'll get 20 who go, okay, let's do this. And then we start mapping out the experiment design. And you know what's fascinating is in the creative field, again, it's that early adopter piece, right? We've seen so much consolidation in the creative agency field. It's really rare to see an amazing 100, 200 person creative team that has not been gobbled up by a larger creative agency. And From the creative piece, people spend so much money, brands spend so much money on the research piece, like you said, the strategy piece, and they often don't look at the neuro piece, right? And then they create the creative and they don't test how the creative itself, post-production, how it's hitting the brain. So there's opportunity to do the imaging piece before, after, and you can get fairly reliable results with 30 to 50 subjects, right? And again, it takes a certain mindset to say, I want that as an additional data point on top of all the other research that either the client's providing, or if you are the client that you have internally, and put all that together into a fuller picture before you actually go live with something. I was just going to ask that, would this replace groups and some other quantitative study? Ooh, I think scalability will be an issue in the near to midterm future. So I don't think it will replace it. I think focus groups have their place. I think ethnographic research probably should be more popular because sure, focus groups are useful and you you have a million different companies doing focus groups. You don't have a million different companies in ethnographic research. You certainly don't have a million different companies doing neuroimaging research. So I don't think it's going to replace any of those because they all have their pros and cons, right? And the biggest con is you can't scale to... 5,000 people with the octopus helmet. Give me the, it just takes a long time. But you can scale the other pieces and then get 50 data points on the neuro piece and see if it aligns. This was a long time ago. Cheetos did a version of this where they launched an ad. They didn't launch it. They created a creative TV ads and focus groups overall rejected it. It mm-hmm. was overwhelming. It was considered too mean. And before they scrapped all the work they did on it, someone in-house convinced the creative team to go, okay, can we, let's, let's throw some neuroscience on it. Let's see what's actually happening. Again, this was super early. And they found out that the self-reported results under imaging were consistent with focus group and survey results. However, looking at the level of the brain, they were actually able to identify attraction and they were able to pull out consistently that people are getting some form of pleasure like a train wreck like you can't get <laughs> keep your eyes away from I, it or something it's more akin to schadenfreude this might be the first time that we've figured out schadenfreude in, in the marketing world and they overrode all the other feedback and they went live and the ads did really well now cheetos did not publicly go out and say what kind of brand lift they had. And like, and again, this was before the iPhone came out to contextualize the time, right? Okay. So social listening tools weren't quite the same and going viral wasn't a thing. Yeah. But nonetheless, the ads did really well for Cheetos. And if it wasn't for cutting out the middle person to see what's happening at the level of the brain, those would have never seen the light of day. And yeah. if listeners want to check those out, just Google Cheetos Underground. 
for a series of ads they did. I'm definitely going to Google that. Cheetos Underground. So are you suggesting that there should be neuro experts within a marketing organization? Or should it be that there's somebody in the organization that at least appreciates neuromarketing and neuroscience and wants to tap experts like you? I think there is a massive unmet need for at least one person on a marketing team to understand the neuroscientific principles. And this is why we have a lot of marketing directors who come across our bootcamp because they're the ones who ultimately understand they got the bird's eye view, right? As opposed to the director of content by themselves. So this person is able to see how performance marketing fits in with brand marketing, fits in with the nitty gritty of outreach and everything else in between. This person is able to, so at the very least, that one person should understand neuromarketing principles because it's going to have a foundational impact on how well your marketing will perform. Okay, what's interesting here is traditional research is about people self-reporting their opinions, whether it's through a survey or a focus group and saying that ad is too mean. But neuroscience research can uncover what they say may not align with how their brain is triggering. They could still be attracted to the ad on an unconscious level, even though they might think consciously that the ad is just too mean. And I really like the idea of having a neuromarketer as part of the brand organization, because marketing is the study of human behavior, so why not? The best marketers are the ones who understand their consumers so well that they can anticipate what they need. And now applying this type of research will allow us to analyze what exactly is lighting up in people's brains. I mean, can't get cooler than that. As far as the imaging piece goes, like I said, you have to have a company with a rich research culture. We've turned down clients who haven't done focus groups and large-scale surveys, and they want to go from not really doing a lot of in-house research to jumping to EEG. We skipped a lot of steps to get there. And that's just because we want to set clients up for success. And it's just a different level of value that imaging provides. And imaging is expensive, whereas the boot camps are a drop in the bucket compared to cost of imaging. And I think the better you understand the principles, when you do invest the money for imaging, you're going to get a lot more out of it. Teach a person how to fish. Yeah, that's the right analogy, Jacqueline. It's like, really, what's wild is we haven't talked about your background. I think what's fascinating is you also have to connect the pieces yourself, right? Because you've got a marketing and comms degree, but you also had a minor in psych. And I'm willing to bet the psych professors did not connect those dots for you, right? Like they didn't go, yeah, well, here's, I don't even know what principles you want to talk about. I don't even know if they went over color science in the psych minor, right? And you have to connect those pieces yourself. And that is still our state of reality today. And we are connecting those two pieces and we're connecting them uniquely because you literally are learning from me, the neuromarketer who's tactics heavy and Matt, 
who is the neuroscientist who is research heavy. And we put those yeah. pieces together. Yeah, you guys really are a dream team now that I'm thinking about it. Because if I'm looking for what's the neuroscience take on an asset that's either been developed or has a campaign that has a lot of attention, and I would love to understand what your take would have been or somebody like you. And there's really no resource to really find that. Mm-hmm. And it's you might stumble upon a report but it could be, you know, really dense and very academic. And then you're weeding through all of this data where you both in the team that you make, you it's a really nice balance of obviously data and substance, but it's put in a way of where you tell the stories. This is probably a good transition to talking about the book, because I think that's really why your book appealed to me so much. Not only does the topic of neuromarketing resonate with me, given what I do for a living, But I just think the way that you wrote it and the way that you both like laid out a lot of real stories, real examples, it just was easy to digest. It was easy to understand. And almost to the point that, I mean, I was almost flagging every single page because I was like, oh yeah, that's a good point. Oh yeah, that's another good point. Oh man, that is the biggest compliment. Again, we don't have tactics in the book because the book was written to be the first book that can do, again, our big, giant, hairy, audacious goal, right? Each chapter should feel like its own mini book. We did not want to write a book that takes one concept and talks about it for 300 pages. Right. We wanted to have a vigorously researched book that feels like, ooh, now I just understand how preference works. Now I understand what in the world is mental modeling. Now I understand perception. Now I understand this. Now I understand that. So that was the goal. And the second goal was to not make it so dense, right? Because we did not want it to come across as if you're reading 300 pages of research. We wanted to optimize for communication. We dare I say something you read in the book, you'll bring up at a cocktail party that was written with maybe some sense of levity and perhaps lighthearted humor, but that is deeply researched. So our references pages are off the charts, but we wrote it because we wanted to be approachable for anyone who's interested in this stuff, not just marketers. I think that came through loud and clear. And in just perusing the Amazon reviews, 4.7 out of five, which is an amazing, impressive accomplishment already. And I think what I want to do is I just want to set up for listeners by reading an editorial review that sums it up really nicely. I thought when I read it, I said, oh, you know, this is just a really good summation of why somebody would want to read this book. So it says, Prince Gooman and Matt Johnson bring to life the science behind how Facebook holds your attention, how Star Wars captured the hearts of generations of moviegoers and selling billions in bottled water to consumers with taps in their homes. And I said, that really intersects exactly what this book is about because you're covering why we make the decisions that we do. You're talking about emotions and memory and the habits that we end up creating for ourselves. What do you think about that editorial review? It's flattering, to be honest, to be able to hit all those things because we're really, we're talking about digital engagement. We're talking about products made for the mass market and we're talking about content, which we sometimes forget why certain TV shows capture our hearts and are borderline addicting. And I mean that, I I guess in that sense, I mean addicting in a good way, right? That hook us and really keep us entertained. You know, we're talking Game of Thrones level, you know, the most downloaded illegally and legally 
piece of content in the history of mass consumption yet, right? And we're talking about the weirdness that was Shades of Grey and how Shades of Grey went from being this random thing about kink to really selling a gajillion books. And there are parallels, believe it or not, obviously not at the content level, but between Star Wars and Shades of Grey. And to really understand not just pop culture, but pop products and how they proliferate and go truly borderless. I could not resist reading the reviews. There's a review in there from a screenplay writer. And never in a million years would we have thought that one of our early first 100 or whatever it is reviews would be from someone who writes screenplays professionally and was like, I got ideas on how to better create engaging stories from reading this book. That's a massive compliment. That's huge. Yeah. You know? I understand of wanting to bring your collective experience with Matt to the masses, but what did you want to illuminate exactly for people? At a thesis level, we wanted people to understand themselves better. And we just happened to tell that story through their shopping behavior. And I think that is not a common narrative. If you look at the space of behavior science books, typically they fall in two buckets. You've got the legends, the Daniel Kahnemans of the world that are researchers and Nobel Peace Prize laureates and everything else in between that write and have really showed us little pieces of our own behavior. And then you have the MBAs, so to speak, who have kind of tried to make one concept that's based on the habit method or what have you, and they they tried to reverse engineer it for creating products. Again, two different buckets. We wanted to not be part of either bucket. We wanted to really go, here's a lighthearted way to understand why you line up to get the next iPhone. Here's why you probably don't even realize why iPhone has iPhone 12 and then 12s, right? iPhone 10 and 10s, and what that really does to your psychology. We wanted to really go, you probably care less about your iPhone as soon as a new one comes out. And you're probably more likely to be okay with it breaking because there's a subconscious justification of it. And it's all many times a design piece. Not always, but many times it's designed that way. All right, that was part one of my conversation with Prince. Are all of your synapses firing in your brain right now? I know, I know, it was a lot of information, but I want to break down some key takeaways. So first, too often as marketers, we get caught up in the business metrics of campaigns, but Prince and Matt have really created this unique lens to gain a deeper understanding of people and how they react to brand advertising. We should get into the habit of at least bringing neuroimaging research to the table for large branding efforts or campaigns. I mean, think about your last A-B test. It's good to know that B was the winner, but isn't it better to really understand why? Secondly, this conversation highlighted the fact that surveys and focus groups provide the conscious feedback from consumers that's merely lying on the surface. As we learned, their brains may be telling a different story. Here's the ideal scenario in my strategy brain. Conduct quant to get that working hypothesis for the role your brand needs to play in the consumer's life. Then compare and contrast creative concepts in focus groups and in neuroimaging. Then you'll have a really well-rounded way to start looking at consumer reaction to what you're doing. Finally, before you write a proposal for an EEG machine in your office, The first step to incorporating neuroscience into your marketing plan 
It begins with understanding the science of attraction and how it applies to the customers that love your brand. So maybe pick up Prince and Matt's book titled Blind Sight First. I promise it's fascinating stuff. In part two with Prince Gooman, we're discussing how marketers are redefining the industry and how to strike a balance between the humanity of a brand and the science behind the human behaviors that support it. This has been an episode of Uncooked. I'm Jacqueline Lieberman, founder and chief strategist at Brand Crudo, a marketing consultancy. If you want to discuss how your company can take advantage of these branding concepts, this is what I do every day. You can find my contact info on brandcrudo.com or the show notes. Hey, one more thing. Apple and Spotify changed the way you subscribe to podcasts now, so it's now follow with the plus sign. I know, I know. But if you liked what you heard, I'd love a follow or rating and let me know how we're doing. Thanks again for listening.